I'm Charlene Kay. I make music under the name Kay, and you're listening to Golden Hour, a show about Asian musicianship, creativity, and intersectional solidarity. Thanks for joining us. So some of you may know that even though I play pop music, I grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona, going to emo and punk shows. And the first show that I ever saw by myself was a Taking Back Sunday show. And I went by myself with my little X's on my wrists that told the bouncers that I was under 18. And I just went up to the front and let Adam Lazara sweat all over me. And it was definitely an evangelical turning point in my conversion to punk music and having that punk spirit in my own stuff. And I always remember looking out into the crowd and being the only person of color there. So it was such a surprise in researching the show to discover Mike Park, who is a DIY ska and punk legend. He's been behind the scenes on so many seminal ska and punk records, such as Less Than Jake, Alkaline Trio. He's been described by Vice as punk rock's renaissance man. He's fronted the bands The Chinkies and the Bruce Lee Band. He started his own label, Asian Man Records. And besides music, activism is a huge part of his work. He's organized a ton of community and charity work, including the Ska Against Racism Tour, creating the youth-focused Plea for Peace Foundation, and many more. We really get into it. I'm such a fan of Mike, and I'm so impressed at his long and storied career. He's been a true torchbearer in the Asian American music community, and my producer Dave and I have been so excited to have this conversation with him. Here's a clip of Asian Prodigy by Mike's band, The Chinkies. This is a conversation about belonging, fighting for your identity through music, and creating the version of the world that you want to see. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Mike, it's so great to have you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, we've been so excited to talk to you. You were at the top of our list when we first conceptualized this podcast. Um, You've been described by Vice as punk rock's renaissance man, but so much of your music has its roots in ska, like your band... Skank and Pickle, excellent name, by the way, and Bruce Lee Band. How do you feel ska is like or unlike punk? Well, I think there's a lot of the ethos. Like punk, I never thought of punk as a sound. I always think of it as ideas. So whether you're a country artist or an electronic artist or EDM, punk is all about ethos, at least in my mind. Um, So ska or whatever type of music you play, as long as you have those ethos, then it should be considered punk. That's the way it I is. view it's it. It's an attitude. It's a lifestyle. Yeah. And so I grew because I grew up in on the West Coast, a culturally diverse area where we had a very uh, some of the first punk bands, especially political punk bands like the Dead Kennedys and Seven Seconds. Yeah. I was really drawn to that um, those ideas that music could be more than just sounds Mm -hmm. you can uh, be influenced by the message. And my first, I remember like first hearing punk and I remember seeing the repo man movie with Emilio Estevez and some of the songs were um, I think suicidal tendencies had a song called institutionalized, which is 
a great song and lyrically it's a great song, but it was in my mind, it was like, all I wanted was a Pepsi and I thought it was so funny. And then black flag had a song called TV party tonight. And I was like, Oh, it's this goofy punk. But then when I started listening to these bands like minor threat, seven seconds, and I was like, Oh man, these lyrics are so intense. And yeah, I, I was all in. So with Scott, it was just an extension of that. I wanted to write um, music that was fun, but also relevant where I could um, kind of say something, mm-hmm. especially from the Asian American standpoint of, what it was like, what it continues to be like as a, as a son of an, of immigrants. And um, exactly like you said, mm-hmm. I bet our stories are identical. I was, everything was frowned upon. I, I listened to my mom every day, tell me I needed to go back to college. Mm. I needed to become a doctor, lawyer, or engineer. I needed to go to MIT, Stanford, mm-hmm. Ivy League school. Yeah. And it was, it was tough and a very, very strict Christian upbringing. Um, my dad was an elder. Uh, my great, great grandfather was one of the first missionaries wow. from, from South Korea. So it's, uh, it runs deep in, in that regard. And so I just, I just kept going. And like one of the, one of the, the best bits of advice I got was from Margaret Cho. Actually, I was early in her career. We were, hang, we, she was from San Francisco. So we were hanging out and she just told me you got to rebel. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I was just like, okay, I just got to do it. Yeah. Talk about someone who has a huge punk attitude. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I rebelled and then yeah, it, it worked out. Uh, fortunately for me, I was able to, um, make a living mm-hmm. in the music business, but it wasn't even that it was somehow Korean media had picked up on the story mm-hmm. and they came to my parents' house, both television and newspaper. And for some reason, Korean parents love to brag about their kids. And so when they, <laughs> their friends saw it on TV, they were calling my parents and right. that was the validation was getting, was being seen as like, oh, he's a success story, which I found very strange. So was that a turning point for your family and seeing you as legitimate? Yes, because they were getting interviewed too. And then I got invited to go to Korea to perform. And I actually got signed to a major label in Korea. And then... was Which band was this with? It was actually the Bruce Lee band. Cool. Yeah. So it was like late 90s. And so I went out there and did a bunch of stuff and my mom came and she came along with some interviews and I'm sure she loved that. Yeah. She got to, <laughs> she got to hang out and go into the TV studios and be in the audience and stuff. Oh so man. She enjoyed it. Isn't that so funny? I, I wonder if that is specifically an Asian parent characteristic. There's something about, and especially an immigrant characteristic too. I know that my mom has sacrificed so much to bring my sister and I to this country. And I think part of her hesitance with both of us being artists, because my sister's a filmmaker, was this sense, this worry that we would never be financially secure. And Mm. she grew up in a state of absolute poverty. And so she still is like struggling with this scarcity mindset. And I, I also had like a turning point where my mom, I had one video of mine with an actor, his name is Darren. He was on the first episode of this podcast and it had like several hundred thousand views when I was 24. And so when she saw that, she was like, 
oh my God, finally, like this is what I needed to see to make sure that you're like going to be okay. And, you know, it, it, it was, it was a bit of a one-off. It didn't, it didn't make me a millionaire or anything like that, but it, what I, I wonder what it is about Asian parents needing to brag to their friends or something like that to finally like approve of the path that you've diverged from. Cause my parents were also really insistent upon me going to college. I mean, I, I did go to college, but they my mom's dream still for me is to like get a PhD. And then, and sometimes <laughs> I'm like, what do you, what, what would I get a PhD in? And she's like, anything, anything. And in a way, I think it's her way of wanting to have me do what she was never able to. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, my mom is still alive. My fa father passed away. My mom's 84 and she's actually in pretty good shape considering her age. But even to this day, I run Asian man out of the, my childhood home out of the garage so i see her every day and my kids are now teenagers my daughter's actually here helping pack records but it's not nothing has changed my my <laughs> daughter got her eyebrows threaded for eight dollars and my mom is furious that she spent eight dollars <laughs> she's i can hear her just giving her the the lessons of saving every penny mm -hmm. I'm like, my god it never changes yeah it's like a luxury or it's a frivolous expense yeah it would and it never will change until she dies yeah so she'll never change no matter how much we have mm -hmm. it will never be enough <laughs> this, yeah yeah the fear that it could be all taken away and that's i think kind of relates to people who grew up in the war in the Korean War, I think they still have this uh, mindset that it can be taken all away. Absolutely. They've they've experienced that. Yeah. Traumatic. So I try not to hold it against her too much. Yeah. I've gone through a long journey as well of understanding my mom better and contextualizing some of the deep-seated fears and, you know, isms that she has said to me throughout my life. I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> well, that said, I'd like to hear about how you got into music in the first place and what that journey was like. It, I, I read that you went to a Fishbone show and that was a yeah. huge turning point for you. I, I was on YouTube looking them up and I was just blown away by how energetic they were and the style, like this, the lead singer has these like bleached dreads and he has this acrylic cane and he's just like, going crazy and i can see how those shows must have been unforgettable yes and also like there's something so radical which i'm sure you've thought about a lot about seeing four or five black men playing this genre of music i really can't name another black ska band or punk band in this in this sphere yeah i i mean so you think about since the beginning of time when rock and roll is invented so 2021, obviously you had the, the, the godfathers of like little Richard and Chuck Berry. Right. But if you think of like popular acts and rock and roll, it's, it's all rock is a white based audience. Yeah. And that's just the reality of it. So when you have the rare bands like a fishbone or a bad brains, um, you just kind of, you're, you are in, at least for me as a young kid, when I first was introduced to Fishbone, I was in awe. Mm, how old were you? When I first saw them, I believe I was 15. And I saw them at Santa Clara University in the basement of like this student rec center. $3. 
yeah, it was, it was life-changing because I can't, even to this day, I've never experienced a band with that much energy. Mm -hmm. So it, it was very impressionable seeing six young men of color mm -hmm. playing music that I enjoyed with also with the simple slogan. It was a t-shirt with their fishbone logo and it was just fuck racism. And just seeing that simple slogan, I was like, whoa, this is, this is heavy stuff. Maybe I didn't realize it at the time, but as through the years, just how much that influenced me in my own um, drive to be political through music. Yeah. And so I, I, I credit everything to Fishbone. That's the reason I wanted to play music. And that's one of the reasons I became political through music. Mm. And, and so all hats off to that band without, I, I would say without that band, I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. Would you say that that was the point at which your heritage became activism? I don't know if that very moment, it was, it was when I started my first real band and got and kind of saw the world as a young adult. That was my college in lieu of college. I was doing the band. So just starting to travel outside of the, culturally diverse California going into the South and seeing most of the time it was me. I was the agent. I was the representation. So that's when my music lyrically, I was, I, I wanted to identify just my stories through music. And so whether that was meant to be overtly political or not, I don't know at the time, but I knew I wanted to tell a story through songs. Did you ever get to meet Fishbone? Yeah, I'm I'm really good friends with them. The singer just played on. Uh, I just finished recording a new album. He played on the record, and um, oh wow, that's such a full circle moment. Yeah, and, and I released a couple, but he's also a poet, and I did a couple of poetry records for him on on Asian Man. So we've, we've been able to work together and, um, yeah, I, I love the guy. <laughs> Angelo Moore is his name, the singer. That is so special. I was in this band for five years called San Fermin and I was also the, I was the only full Asian person. There were two other Asians in the band, but they were half and they were a little bit more white passing. And I also experienced this thing when we went to the South or like in Colorado or something like that, where I was treated super differently and I got asked if I was the violin player without even a thought. And I would, there were all these instances of like really casual, like, are you Michelle Kwan? And, you know, things like that, that you'd think would, would have been left in the nineties, but it just happened over and over again. And you just realize how, how we have such a long way to go. I think things are better than they've ever been, but. Do you, do you know? I mean, in terms of the Asian artists that I have contacted for this show and the Asian artists that I see active touring, yes, I do think it's better than it was when I was younger. Living in Arizona, growing up in a predominantly white atmosphere. Do you not? Well, I'm just talking about just the, the rise in AAPI hate crimes happening in the U.S. I feel like, I don't know. I feel like it's, things are backwards, like two steps forward five steps back i don't know i i don't i'm and i'm thinking about music also if we're if we're talking strictly music and how it has evolved for asian american artists has what can we name 
an Asian, a, a person of color who is identifiable, not as a Hapa, like a Karen o, who's half Korean and awesome, but who looks like me mm-hmm. who is in a popular band that is commercially successful. Does it exist? Has it existed? Mm-hmm. I guess it has with BTS. So maybe <laughs> my theory is completely off. But still, they're otherized in a way that I feel like is not, they're not considered American. If we're talking about like the American ideal, like we're in America, I think in popular culture, there's still such a a advantage if you have more Eurocentric features or if you have more proximity to whiteness than the more familiar and accepted you are for our beauty standard. And I feel Mm -hmm. like, yeah, BTS is still sort of like, it's K-pop. And so it feels very like exotic in a way. I think that's partially what has to do with their appeal, but you're right. As far as American full Asian pop stars go, I really can't think of too many. I can't think of any. Yeah. (laughs) I don't don't know any, I don't know anyone who looks like me. Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, talking like popular, like arena rock type band that's that's just all over the the medias like media darlings it it doesn't exist and so i don't know i i i I tend to be pessimistic (laughs) about the progress because I, i always feel like i get let down when i feel like things are changing for the better but i i'm also eternally optimistic that things will turn for the better. But as I, again, as I get older, it's just like, what has changed? I feel like mm-hmm. just things have, things have stayed the same or even have gotten worse, mm-hmm. but, but it's not going to stop me. I'm doing my thing and I'll continue to do my thing. And I'm, I'm proud to be able to lend a voice to people of color and Asian American, young Asian Americans who, need to have some kind of role model to look up to and whatever degree that is with my F-less celebrity, I'm down to do it. Yeah. I, I want to ask what Asian artists are you into right now? And are there any that you specifically mentor and what types of connections have you made over the years with this community that's evolving? Well, there's a, in San Jose, there's a, there's a woman named Yvette Young who plays in a band called Covet. Um, just a shredder guitar player, like shredder. Just, I can't even explain. Like I, when I watch her play, I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, why am I even playing? It's one of those musicians where you go, why do I even play guitar? Mm-hmm. She, she has more talent in her left pinky nail yeah. than I have in my entire body. So th- that's frustrating. But at the same time, she is someone who looks like me and is killing it. That's awesome to see. I mean, killing it. She's she's sought after. Like everybody's trying to sponsor her. Every guitar magazine's trying to interview her, and she's on her band is crushing it because of her. And I'm proud of that. Like, and it goes back to me being proud of in the '80s. Like, I rooted for anyone who looked like me. Like Michael Chang as a tennis player when he won the French Open, I was yeah. stoked because he mm-hmm. looked like me. Jeremy Lin when Lin Sanity was happening, I was like, yes. This is awesome. So I'm always rooting for the underdog. And so in music, Yvette Young, uh, 
I like Mitski. I like um Yeah, Mitski's dope. Asian American, let me think. <laughs> I mean, there's not many. That's the problem. It's I, I. It's not like well. They definitely exist. I can I can think of a lot in the indie space, but it almost feels like there's an indie ceiling or something. Yeah, Sue Young Park, who was from Chicago, who did the band Seam back in the '90s. What a great band and great artist he was, and he just disappeared off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. But um, I work with a lot of bands from Japan too, so I've. Obviously not Asian American, but just people of color. So there's, I mean, Japan, the music scene is insane. And Korea too, the music scene is, I've been able to play Korea probably like six times now, met some amazing bands. Yeah. But I I definitely take notes when I, if I'm at a show and I see someone in a band that's Asian, I definitely like, I'll perk up and go, oh, who is that? Yeah. (laughs) It's special. It feels like family. Yeah. It's my underdog mentality of like, oh, there's there's someone on stage that looks like me. And that's awesome. What do you think would have to happen over the next generation in order for us to be seen as legitimate musicians, regardless of what we look like? Well, I think we are considered legitimate musicians, but in the classical music sense, of course, we have a longstanding... Group of men and women who have succeeded in that genre. If we're talking strictly like rock based music, I guess I hate to say that maybe a, a major label would have to pour in a lot of money because I feel like, because I hate major labels so much, but I guess maybe that would, it would take a corporation to just pour in the money and just shove it in America's face and go, here it is. Yeah. Here's someone super talented and you're going to, we're at least going to give it our all to see if it'll stick with the American people. Uh, in hip hop, it's more prevalent mm-hmm. that that would happen versus versus rock because it's just first of all, how many Asian Americans are are playing rock based music? I think it's such a small minority. Yeah, especially out of the maybe the bigger cities. So the influence is definitely in hip hop. And and I think there's a definitely a very strong scene. Dave and I have been talking a lot about this idea of what is Asian music? What does Asian American music sound like? And part of the goal with this podcast is to get other Asian musicians perspective on that and hopefully have a broader uh, answer to that question, even if we never fully answer it. So I'm curious about you know, why do we care about creating a voice for ourselves as Asian Americans? Why do you care about, why do you get excited when you see people that look like you on stage doing what they do? Like, I I know that there's a tribal element of just wanting to band with people who look like us because there is this innate sense of family, but what do you think it is that sparks you so much about fighting for representation? I feel like I know this, their story and that's why I am so in favor of support. I know that their family probably, these are all assumptions, but I think, I think they're fair assumptions. I bet as a youngster, their family forced them to play an instrument against their will, against their stereotyping, probably piano or string instrument, a uh, violin or viola. And let's say said, 
child grows up to love this instrument and wants to take it to the next level as a profession, then the parent suddenly who forced them to play this instrument is not supportive of their idea of making this their career choice. So you're constantly dealing with this parental block of what you can and can't do. And without anybody who looks like you to pave the way, there's, there's nothing to show your parents of like, Hey, this guy's doing it or this guy's doing it. And your parents haven't, they don't see anything. So why should they believe you can do it? They've never seen anybody that looks like you that's playing rock based music. And that's why it's important to support Asian American artists and to lend a voice or an ear for the older generation who've been doing it. Right. Oh, that's so poignant. And I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time. And it really strikes home for me as someone who fought so hard to fight to for my life force. And there's so many kids out there, regardless of where you come from or what your upbringing is, who recognizes that music, that art is a part of their identity. I've always felt that it was a bigger fight than just wanting to be a singer songwriter as a career with my parents. It was a fight for my own, for my soul. It sounds dramatic, but I always felt like I was going to die if I weren't able to do this. And if I, yeah, if, <laughs> if I was going to stifle this, the most important aspect of myself, then I might as well just not live. <laughs> and yeah. And so it becomes more than just like, I want to be a famous singer. It's like, this is something that, that feeds you at a most basic level and it's connection, it's empathy, it's community. Exactly. And I, I really believe that it's so, it's so important. And again, I just admire all the work that you've done to bring the community together and to make these voices heard. It's really, really admirable. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, again, it's, it's always weird to, to hear compliments and I, I, I'm very appreciative when, when people uh, recognize something that I've, I've, I've been trying to do and continue to try and do so. Thank you for that. I'm wondering if you had a moment like me when you were like, I fucking hate sight reading and I never want to do another recital again, but I've just discovered this, that I can tune my nylon string guitar down to drop D and play punk songs. <laughs> And that was like a huge revelation for me. <laughs> wow. That's, that's, that's awesome. No, I quit piano early on where before I was any good, it was like, <laughs> maybe I took it for two years. Guitar. I just self-taught myself. And when I was in high school, so I never took any lessons. I just, it was something I really loved and it was, I was just couldn't wait to get home to just play. What do you think the future of punk is? Do you think the kids are into it? Well, yeah, it's just different. I think it's it's evolved so much. It's very, a lot of critical thinking in, in punk these days. Um, youth, the ideas of youth have really taken hold of, I think more than the music, just the idea that of community and DIY is mm -hmm. really important to a lot of 
uh, people, not just in the United States, all across the world. Yet there's, it's strange when you tour abroad and you have that commonality of punk mm -hmm. and you're instantly drawn to this person 7,000 miles away who doesn't speak the same language as you, but you are just, it's like you, you're best friends. It's, it's a powerful ingredient and a powerful moment when you click with someone like that. And so the future of punk, I just feel like it's, it's not a sound. It's just, I, th I think it's more kids being political, um, using their voices to tell the world what's up and what's, what's fucked up. And I'm all for it, you know, not, not standing for bullshit or misogyny or racism and just being a, a loud voice amongst not just one person, not just two people, but a community and um, just increasing that, that those ideas. At least that's my hope. Yeah. I think the Chinkies is a super punk band name. It's very in your face. There's, it's pretty unmistakable. That's, that's another Margaret show. Margaret show came up with that name. Wow. When she had uh, her show, all American girl, the sitcom back in the nineties, yeah. they were running some, before they came up with that name, they were coming up some crazy racist names, like walk on the wild side. <laughs> like W O K. Yeah. Like crazy names. She, yeah. So she told them, she's like, she's like, we should just fucking call it the cheekies at this point. And then she, she told me that story. And then I was like, Oh, I'm going to use that name. <laughs> so I'm I'm curious you've had a range of success with each of your bands and I want to ask you about this idea of success as a creative person and from a spiritual standpoint too it's something I think about all the time in regard to my own career and in regard to my other creative endeavors and the conversations that I have with musicians in this community how do you define success for yourself and what does the commercial success of some of your bands, how does that reframe your idea of creativity? Yeah. I mean, success is measured, obviously, as you said, success is measured in very, in many different ways and everyone views success differently. Uh, the fact that I can support my family doing this, I consider that success. Have I ever been commercially successful? I have not. I've never had a hit. The closest I've come is, I've written a couple songs for some bands in Japan that had the songs did very well. That's as close as I've come. Would I like a hit? Of course. Will I get a hit at age going on age 52? No, it's not going to happen. Well, let me take that back. It's not going to happen with me as the singer. Maybe I can write a song for someone else that I can see that happening, but I've given up on the idea that me as an artist can make it to another level of, of um, popularity. And I'm okay with that. And I understand the, the limitations of what I have, but I'm also very grateful of the underground following that I do have, that I'm able to go on tour. I can go to any country in the world and there'll be people to see me. Yeah. And it's, it's not a, um, it's not a bar band setting. It's people who have to buy tickets to see me play. And yeah, you were an answer in the crossword recently. That's <laughs> right. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> That's a milestone if I ever heard one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so 
that's that's what I consider success, at least for on my on my level. But again, it's different for everybody. And bands that I know personally that are super successful, they the problem is they want more. They see bands that are bigger than them, and they they feel like, well, we should be that big, and it just never stops. The cycle never stops, and that's what I find is can be harmful to their mental health. And that's why you see a lot of artists break down because there's this, always this expectation to get to that next level of success, even though you've hit such a high tier already. Oh, it's so true. And yeah, I, I, I've also never had any sort of commercial success like that. And I, but I do have friends that have, and it's such a never ending pursuit of the next number than the, the bigger, if it's not a van, it's a bus. If it's not a bus, it's a plane. And you're always going to compare your monthly Spotify listenership with another band's. And, you know, it's it's tough because thinking about it that way is definitely a death sentence to joy and can definitely impact your mental health. Oh, for sure. I mean, I had in two, end of 2019, I had my I had a mental health breakdown and I'd, I've always been high stressed. I've always been um anxious but i've always been able to deal with it and then the end of 2019 i just hit a wall where i couldn't control it anymore and i was like oh my god i get it i i finally understood you'd always hear about friends in the industry who stopped going on tour because they're of their mental health and you'd always feel bad but you never quite understood it because it never happened to you and then when it happened to me i i got it and I said, wow, mm. I totally understand why these bands can't or these musicians had to stop touring. It's tough. It's it's a tough grind. And um, luckily, I've found the right medication and the right uh, therapy where I feel like I'm in a good place. But less therapy. Yeah. And I'm just but I'm also you know, I know my limitations. I know my days of touring are done. <laughs> mm -hmm. Was it a result of touring? Were you touring at I, the time? I think, I think that had a lot to do it, do with it. I was still touring and I was like, why am I still doing this? And it wasn't, I'm not doing luxurious touring. It was in a van sleeping in, in you know, hotels, but also strangers floors a lot still. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, why am I doing this? And so, yeah, uh, it just came to, and it was something because I think I was still in my mind, I would glorify it because I enjoyed it so much when I was young, but something you enjoyed when you're 18 versus 50, it's just, you can't have the same expectations. Yeah. Unless something really plush comes up. I don't see myself doing much touring. Yeah, it sounds really existential. Thank you for sharing that with me, with me. No problem. I have no problem telling people when that when I was having that mental health breakdown. I was telling everybody, I'm like, man, I am freaking out. Yeah, and I would just just let it out, and it. I didn't want any. I had no shame in it, and I don't want it. I feel like it shouldn't be viewed as a weakness, but as a strength that you can just admit that you're that you're messed up. Absolutely. It's so important to talk about. That's so interesting that it happened at 2019. And I, I want to know what the rest of the pandemic was like for you in the wake of that. It was awesome. Great. I'll, be, I'll be honest. <laughs> it was awesome. It was a saving grace for me because 
it took like meds to kick in. It took like a good three and a half months, months where I finally felt like, Oh, this is working. And when the pandemic hit, the expectations for me to be places was gone. And I was like, I was in my safe space. I was home with your family, with my family playing, playing guitar. I even bought a sauna. So I had a sauna. I would just sit and it was awesome. And I feel like that totally saved me. It's crazy to say, cause it drove most people crazy. But for me, it was like, Oh, this is awesome. I didn't have to do it. I didn't have to go to any shows. I didn't have to play any shows. I didn't have to go anywhere. Honestly, it's nothing to do but rest and take care of yourself. Exactly. And in that way, that's tough for people like us who I feel like are always are ambitious and we're like, go, go, go all the time. And we want to be active and we want to be out in the world. Yeah. And I, I still, I still am like that, but in different ways now. So when I'm, I have to be productive doing something. So it's either writing music or even doing yard work. Like I got to do something. Doing things with your hands is, I mean, I, I redid my whole house after the pandemic, my, my apartment and, or during the pandemic and just the act of paint, putting paint on a wall, yeah. just not being on a, on a screen and building something with your hands is so gratifying. Exactly. Just, I, I need to be doing something always. And um, I realize I don't have to tour to do that, which is very healing for me, at least. Definitely. I also had a sort of existential breakdown over the spring, like March and April. It was like the pandemic had been happening for a year. I was, I was just feeling so isolated and it was such a struggle to maintain optimism. But I'm so grateful that my friends, my therapist, I have the tools that I need to be able to dig myself out of those places. I read that you give your your phone number out for people to contact you about their own mental health struggles. And I'm curious what that experience is like. Yeah, I just felt like I want, it, it, it sucks because usually it's around a time someone of note, some celebrity of note, takes their own life and due to mental health issues. And I hate that it comes down to that where it, it makes me reach out and say, Hey, if anyone is needs something to talk to, here's my number. Mm -hmm. And, um, people told me it's, it's, it's saved their lives. And that's something that hit me so hard where I was like, you know, I got to continue doing this. If people do need to talk, I will talk to them. And sometimes it will be at an opportunity an unopportune time where I'm doing something, but I'll text them back. I'm all, listen, I, I have to do this. I'll call you back in an hour and then I'll talk to them. And, you know, a lot of times they're in tears and they just, they need someone to talk to that they look up to, even though they don't, we don't know each other personally, it's, they look up to me. And so I think whatever I can do, whatever, whether it be small or big, I, I just feel like I have to, I have to do something. Yeah. Was there ever a time that you had too many of those people? Did you ever feel overwhelmed by carrying all of that emotionally? I didn't. I felt it made me feel good that I was able to help. So it never became something where I felt like it, it started to affect my mental health. If anything, it, it made me feel better that I could help someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if, if it had a negative effect, I would definitely have 
squashed it there, but it, it had to, it had a positive impact on me. That's so great. I mean, yeah, definitely when you're, I feel like one of the things that's helped me is helping other people when I feel that I'm struggling. 100%. Maybe it's top of mind because the Olympics are happening, but I'm grateful that there's been more of a conversation around the importance of saying that you needed some help with regard to like Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka and some of the athletes that have come forward about how they've been struggling with that as well. Yeah. I, and it, when, gosh, social media is an evil, an evil tool because I'll go on these, I'll go doom scrolling on stuff like that. And the people are so, so mean to them. I just don't understand it. It really crushes my soul. And I, I hate that I doom scroll at four in the morning. It's, it's not healthy, but it just, I, I can't stop. I keep telling myself. It's like myself, a car crash. You can't look away. <laughs> I know. Thank you so much, Mike, for your time. And I'm super excited about this episode. I feel like I could talk to you for 10 hours mm -hmm. and we'd find so many common themes and but you know i just appreciate this chance to, to meet you and to talk to you about my a little bit about myself yeah. and uh, learning learning a little bit about you and likewise i hope we can meet in person when you tour to the west coast please would love that need to see this basement <laughs> or the garage yes yes asian man headquarters I'm in there. I'm here right now. Yes, that's great. <laughs>